From Rauschenberg, I got this idea of art as a collaboration. And I thought to myself, why can't profiles be thought of as a collaboration? Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Next week, when Christmas rolls around, the luckiest boys and girls of the art world may find a hefty, roughly cube-shaped present under the tree. It's not a new Xbox. It's a time machine in the form of a collection of the dozens of artist profiles that the journalist Calvin Tompkins has written across his astonishing 60 years at The New Yorker magazine. Published in a lavish new multi-volume set by Fiden, the compendium is called The Lives of Artists, an intentional reference to Giorgio Vasari's revered 16th century biographical catalog of the greatest Renaissance artists of his day. For Tompkins, however, his quarry has not toiled in the cathedrals and palaces of Europe, but rather in the cold water flats and industrial lofts of the exceedingly secular modern world. Now 94 years old, Calvin Tompkins, who incidentally is universally known as Tad, has also published 18 books about artists and the art world. But if there's one artist he's associated with above all, it is Marcel Duchamp, the indispensable modern artist and primogenitor of what we know today as conceptual art. If you don't know who Duchamp is, think of it this way. He's the guy who made it possible for the Italian artist Maurizio Catalan to duct tape a banana to the wall in Art Basel, Miami Beach, call it art, and sell it for $120,000. So thank you very much, Marcel. Plumbing artist mysteries are par for the course for an art journalist. But Calvin Tompkins decidedly approaches his job with a just-the-facts-ma'am attitude and the hard work of shoe-leather reporting, accumulating reams of telling details that make even the most difficult artists seem accessibly human, if not easily understandable. Now, to talk about his work and also some of those artists, we are joined today by the author himself. Thank you very much for being on The Art Angle, Tad. You're very welcome. So, there's a lot to talk about. But why don't we start where your own career did? How did you first meet Marcel Duchamp? Uh, that is the story of how I became involved in writing about art. It's entirely by accident. I had no background in art. I took one art course in college on the Italian Renaissance. Knew practically nothing about it. But I was writing for Newsweek magazine in the, in the mid-50s. And Newsweek had no art coverage in those days. Neither did Time. They covered theater and books and film and sometimes dance and quite often music, but they'd had no regular coverage of art. But once in a while, an editor would get an idea for an art story and pull somebody from another department to write it. And that's how one day I was called out of the foreign news department and said, go and interview Marcel Duchamp. What did that mean to you? Well, it didn't mean as much as it should have. I was aware of Duchamp. I knew that descending a staircase had been the scandal of the Armory show in 1915. Hmm. I don't think I knew that he had become an American citizen and was living in New York. He had sort of dropped out of the art world. And people who were very involved with the art world knew about him, but people outside sort of assumed that he disappeared. And so... I came into the interview, which was in the King Cole Bar of the St. Regis Hotel, hmm. uh, knowing very little, and 
I've asked a lot of pretty dumb questions as a result. For instance, I asked him, um, how do you spend your time now that you've stopped making art? Because that was the common perception, that he had quit making art in favor of chess. Hmm. Entirely untrue. He'd been working for the last 20 years of his life on a major work, Etan Donnet. I asked Duchamp this, and he smiled, and he said, oh, I'm a breather, a respirateur. I enjoy it very much. And then he went on to talk a bit about why do people feel that they need to work? And that got into more strange lanes. And this is what he did through the whole interview. I would ask an innocuous or irrelevant or inaccurate question, and he would, without correcting me, he would turn it into something wretched and strange. Hmm. And as a result, I felt this is the most interesting person I've ever met. Wow. I mean, this is obviously decades after his signal achievements in the art world where he tilted a urinal on its back and called it Fountain. You later did an interview with him over a series of afternoons in 1965. Mm -hmm. At what point did you figure out that he was actually still making art and he was not just a respirateur? Certainly not in 65. I knew more about him by then because the first monograph on his work ever had been published in 59 by Robert Lavelle. And so I knew pretty much about the breadth and the importance of his career. But nobody outside of his wife, Teeny, and two other people knew that he had been at work in secret on a very strange installation. It took up a whole room, combined things that had never been in Duchamp before. If I may interject here, this artwork is now held in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. The way that this is probably known among the adolescent boys of Philadelphia is that there is a door where there's a little bit of a keyhole opening through which you can peer a naked recumbent woman who is lying in this kind of Leonardo da Vinci-esque landscape. How did you first start to get a sense that he was secretly laboring on this artwork? Was this only after the 65 interview and before your... Oh, this was was long after. He hadn't divulged anything about the Eton Donnet until the year before he died. Hmm. And he only did that because he needed to arrange for its what happened to it. He died in 68, and then it became generally known that he had been at work on this thing for 20 years. But I didn't know about it, certainly when I wrote the profile. Nobody knew about it, which was so amazing at that time that somebody could make himself invisible. It's unbelievable. And of course, this is now a big piece of your magisterial 1996 biography of the artist, which is the biography of Duchamp. As somebody who has spent so much time with this very elusive artist, what was he like as a person? He was unpretentious. He didn't want to impress you. He didn't want to make any kind of impression. He was just happy to be in the present moment and looking at it with fresh eyes. I mean, it's clear that he impressed you. He certainly did. Fast forward to just recently this month, you profiled somebody who is very much an inheritor of the mantle of Duchamp as conceptual artist, and also somebody who is even more elusive than Duchamp. Of course, I'm talking about the great conceptualist David Hammonds who I believe has only given a very small handful of interviews 
to any journalist over his entire life. I mean, he's kind of the J.D. Salinger yes. of the art world in exactly, a way. Exactly, yes. What made you decide to try to interview him? Well, it was the fact that he had given the idea for this new public artwork that the Whitney Museum is funding and managing. It's a sort of ghost image of a pier that used to be there on the waterfront right below the Whitney Museum. When the museum was about a year from being finished, Whitney invited a number of artists to come and walk through the galleries, and Hammonds was one of the ones who was invited. Of course, they had hope that he would do something for the museum, which was almost completely ridiculous because what he enjoyed doing most was refusing commissions from museums and major collectors. And he didn't agree to do something. But as they were walking through the museum, Adam Weinberg, the director, they were standing by one of the big windows on the fifth floor looking over the river. And Adam came over and said to Hammonds, he said, Oh, you know, right down there was the pier that Gordon Matter Clark had turned into a public monument in the early 70s. The pier was no longer in use. And he had gone in without permission and cut three very large openings in the shed, in the roof, in the walls, and um, in the floor. He had figured out how these would enable light to come in at different times of day. And he saw it as, as a public work. He really hoped it would become a kind of a mecca for the gay people who would turn this and other peers into sort of meeting places. And Hammonds, he listened carefully, but he didn't say anything. And then two days later, he got a letter in the mail with no explanation, with a drawing of, it looked like the ghost image of the pier shed. It was open work, just the interior structure, and it was floating in the water. And underneath it, it said, a monument to Gordon Matter Clark. No further explanation. And Adam and the other curators had no idea. They said, is this a proposal? Is this a thank you for the, the walkthrough? They didn't know. And because everything was so frantic, getting ready for the museum to open, they didn't answer the letter for a while. But eventually, one of the curators began having meetings with Hammond, sort of sounding him out. And this led, after a year of this going on, this led to the Whitney's initiating investigations of whether they could build something like this. It was a replica of Pierre 52, uh, but like a ghost replica, by a, an amazing kind of coming together of kindred spirits. It has become a reality. It's going up right now. But anyway, they got very much involved with this project. And when I heard about it and heard that Hammonds was involved, I thought this would make, if not a profile, a some sort of a piece. So how did you know that there was an opening to even do that? I don't think we did. I mean, Tony was working on this with me, my wife. And uh, we worked mainly through Lois Plant, who was an amazing woman who was sort of Hammonds. There's no official position, but she acts as his manager, and mm -hmm. uh, he's never had a dealer who represents him, and she's the closest thing to that. One of her main jobs is keeping people who want to talk to him away. Mm -hmm. But we made contact with her, and um, of course we kept saying we'd like to talk to David, and that didn't happen for quite a while. She said, you know, he changes his mind all the time, you may not do it. 
But sure enough, in the end of August, we got a call from Lois saying he will meet with you and your wife in his studio in Yonkers for one hour on such and such a day. Paint a picture of what David Hammonds is like for all of us who will never get a chance to meet him. <laughs> uh, once he lets you in, he's very winning. He speaks very softly, but in some way, very audibly. You can hear everything he says, even though he's talking in a very quiet voice. And he's very funny. He has a great sense of humor, and he likes to exercise it. His mind is very nimble. He skips from subject to subject in a sort of a dance-like pattern. Mm-hmm. And the things he says are like some of the things Dushan said. They're very unexpected. To step back a little bit from David Hammonds and talk about your own art, because your art is the art of the profile. How do you go about choosing who you want to profile, and then after you make that choice, what is your process for proceeding from there? Well, in my case, it was always a matter of one thing leading to another. I didn't think about this before, but it just so happened that the first artists that I got involved with, they had many of the same approaches and ideas about art. Somehow they had gotten involved in the same wavelength. And was a wavelength that had to do with the definition of art. That art maybe was not what people had thought it was or could be different. It could be something else. It could involve change. It could involve chance measures. And Duchamp had opened this up, of course, with his ready-mades, which are common manufactured objects which are transformed into art by the artist who chooses them and signs them. Although in Duchamp's case, he never thought of them as art objects. He wanted them to be absolutely devoid of any aesthetic appeal. Years later, he was having a public conversation with Alfred Barr at the Museum of Modern Art. And Barr said, well, we know that you've always said that the ready-mades had no aesthetic appeal. But why is it that some of them are now so beautiful to look at? And Duchamp said, well, nobody's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) The editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick, has compared you to a portraitist in the way that you approach your profiles. And that's obviously a very specific term to be Mm. using when talking about an art journalist. What do you think are the necessary ingredients to creating a true and lasting portrait of an artist? From Rauschenberg, I got this idea of art as a collaboration. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, why can't profiles be thought of as a collaboration. And this became one of the things that I looked for when deciding what artist I wanted to do. Hmm. I looked for artists who I felt could be interested in this idea of collaborating, of exploring territory that maybe they hadn't explored themselves and of finding out new stuff. But aside from that, I, I've never had any theories, any any ideas about how it could be done. And every profile, almost every profile, has been not like the last in the way that I end up writing it. A certain strain of personality can lead to a different tempo of writing. And I just, you know, trying to leave myself open enough to pick up these sometimes unspoken currents. I wonder, what kind of access do you need in order to do your best work? Well, the ideal is what David Remnick says is somebody who will fill your bowl, 
You just turn them on and they pour forth their lives into your lap. And there are not too many people like that. To some people, it seems to be a very pleasant experience. And uh, to others, it's painful. But I don't think there's any particular method or course to, to follow. Have there been any artists who have surprised you either in how difficult they are or in how easy they are, somebody who really subverted your expectations? There have been some difficult ones. Um, <laughs> I can imagine. In addition to Hammond's. Um, who were the rudest artists they've told? Well, I think a candidate for that would be Richard Serra. Okay. I wasn't at all sure he would agree to it because a few years earlier... I had written about his tilted arc in New York, which a lot of people in this vicinity hated. Mm -hmm. And I wrote about it saying something to the effect that public art requires different approaches than art for museums or private homes. And he was very offended by that. Mm -hmm. He didn't speak to me for two years. He would turn his back on me. Wow. And then eventually that was no longer the case. And he was doing such magnificent work that I, I think I really can't not try to do him. And it became slightly painful, but, but really a very rewarding experience to watch some of these great, huge walls of steel come together. And the amazing thing always was that with all this huge amount of weight, the way he would install them, there was a lightness to them. There seemed to be a, a movement up and out. And I didn't know how that happened, and I didn't find out. I mean, that's mm. not the kind of thing he could talk about. But he did want to control the whole thing, and that persevered until the very end. When the piece was going to press in The New Yorker, he called us and the photo department of The New Yorker saying that he didn't want them to use the photographs of his work that he had agreed to. He said, I have just finished a new piece in New Zealand, and I'm going to photograph it, and I'm going to send, send it to you, and I want you to use those. And so we got three photographs. It was of a long, low piece in the landscape, going over hills and down, like a wall, but sort of undulating. And the next day, the New Yorker chose one of them, and the next day he called and he said, uh, you can use the one with the sheep on the right, but you cannot, under any circumstances, use the one with the sheep on the left. <laughs> and, uh, you know, besides wondering why he didn't tell us that the first time or why he sent the ones, uh, <laughs> I knew right away that the, the one the New Yorker would have chosen would be the one with the sheep on the left, <laughs> which they had. And he was, he, he was absolutely furious. But they wouldn't change it by that time. They had spent so much money pulling out one layout and putting in another, they weren't going to change it again. So he, up until the very end, he was um, trying to control. You have profiled all these countless great artists mm -hmm. over time. You said that you haven't developed any overarching theories, but is there anything that unifies them that gives you some insight into what it is that makes a great artist tick? Uh, quite possibly there is, but I, I don't know what it is. To me, art is still a mystery. You know, I'm a, a Duchampian in the sense that I, I believe it's possible to define, that it's always going to be changing. I think what made a great painting in the 16th century, some of the same elements would be in a work by Richard Serra, for instance, 
But, but I think there are so many differences. What are some other ways that art has evolved over the whole course of your 60 years at The New Yorker that you find really compelling today? Well, it's, it certainly has opened up to all sorts of different possibilities that, that art can be video, it can be um, film, it can be performance. There are all these new media and materials that can be used to make art. Uh, you know, Dishon is often blamed for ruining art, that he, he's the one who opened the door to all the terrible, mediocre, lazy art that, that we do see a lot of along with the more important. But it, it also gives us artists like Mauricio Catalan, right. who has put images into the world that you are not going to forget. Mm-hmm. Who's going to forget the Pope in full regalia after being struck by a meteor? Or the kneeling figure when you walk around to the front and you realize it's Adolf Hitler. And the big question hits you, would God forgive Hitler? Hmm. Uh, You know, conceptual art is many, many things, but one of them is this ability to deal with very big ideas. I have to ask you, as the reigning Duchamp scholar (laughs) that I can think of, what do you make of Mauricio Catalan's banana that has created this enormous international furor in the press. What does this mean about the world that we're in? Well, of course, the joke is that anybody is paying $120,000 for it. Mm-hmm. Plenty of artists who put pieces of some miserable string or something on the wall, and they're quite serious. But this is an artist who's professionally not serious. Mm-hmm. He's making fun of everybody, making fun of, of the art, of the audience, of the buyer, of the gallery, <laughs> which is... I think uh, very therapeutic. I think it's great fun and very invigorating to have everything called into question. Do you believe everything that the artists tell you in your reporting process? Oh, well, that would be disastrous, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to ask, as somebody who has gotten Jasper Johns, gotten David Hammonds, who are the remaining big game hunting artists that you really want to to nail down? Uh, offhand, I can't think of anybody, but it's because I think I've been sort of rushing it the last couple of years because I'm 94 and um, I don't have more than 30 years left. Wow. <laughs> and um, The next six volumes. <laughs> well, I, I have others in mind. We just in talking to David Remnick this morning about it. But there's the omerta oath of the New Yorker where you don't talk about what you're doing or what you're going to do. Well, Ted, this podcast is going to be released on your 94th birthday, so I want to wish you happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for joining me on The Art Angle today. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week. 